Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. You okay back there? <laughs> Good afternoon. also thinking, oh, I wish I could be in two places at the same time, because it's the second day, which is the last day, and usually I have more time to talk to everybody, uh, one-on-one, so uh, if I didn't talk to you, just know that I wish I could have spoken to you, and this is always the dilemma of being the person at the front of the room, because you want to connect with each person, and uh, it's completely impossible. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so I, I hope so far we're learning uh, how to look more deeply. Uh, the surface of things is amazing, uh, but the depth of things is amazing also. So, uh, in Dharma practice, we call this wisdom, which is seeing more closely and having the the courage to look more closely and the ability to concentrate uh, and see more closely, more intimately. Um, Like, uh, we call this emptiness. So it's like this cup, I just drank all this water, Um, which means I'm going to pee in 20 minutes. (laughs) So you'll have 20 minutes, I'm just going to step out And uh, so this glass, we say the glass is empty, um, but it's empty of water. Uh, It's uh, full of air, but it's empty of water. So when you say empty, it means uh, empty of something. So in uh, the teachings that we're exploring, we say that everything is empty. Which begs the question, what is it empty of? 
So this glass is empty of water, but what it's really empty of is a separate self. So if you study this glass very closely, you'll see that it doesn't have inside this glass a core self. You can't study this glass and find the essential core of the glass in its shape, in its sound, anywhere. The glass is uh, conditions that have arose in this particular form, and the glass is entirely dependent on those conditions. It doesn't have a separate self. It doesn't have a core. But most of the time we're on the surface, so we relate to the glass as separate from me. It has a separate self. But actually, it's empty of a separate self. Yeah? And the same is true for this. We all feel separate from each other or separate from our past. But actually, you're mostly made up of non-human components. You can't find components in you that are you. Most of the components in you are non-human. They're the same components you find all over the natural world. Water, air, bacteria. You have more vegetation in your digestive system than we have out there on the earth. So when you look deep inside of yourself, you find your father and your mother and your caregivers. Uh, on Friday night, uh, where's Heidi? On, on Friday night, I met Heidi's dad. <laughs> this is my favorite thing, is meeting people's parents. Um, actually, that reminds me. Uh, one of the things I noticed about Batabi Joyce in the brief time I knew him uh, it just made me think this is that was his favorite thing. His favorite thing was meeting people's parents. Just thought of that. But anyways, um, so now when I look in Heidi's face, I can see Heidi's dad. And you don't have to look. If you look in somebody's face, you can see their parents. If you look in the mirror at your face, you can see your mother and your father. And if you've lived a life where you haven't known your biological mother or your biological father, you're still looking at your mother and your father. And even sometimes when you have parents that are not your biological parents, uh, you can still see their features in you because we internalize our environment. So that's why when people say, I don't want to have a relationship with my father, you might think, oh, yeah, you could physically stop seeing your father or physically stop seeing a sibling or physically stop seeing your mother. But you can't stop your relationship with your father because your father's inside you. And so you're a continuation of your mother. 
There's no way out of that. So um, when you're practicing and you uh, notice habits in yourself, it's really important that you don't personalize those habits. And that you see that most of our habits of how we perform our identity, uh, we learn them somewhere. We didn't make them up. We learned them somewhere. So you should have a lot of compassion for yourself. <coughs> because the self you think you are is empty of an inherent existence, of an inherent self. You can't search inside yourself and find yourself. You can't find yourself. I feel this way a lot when, you know, uh, I'm teaching sometimes. Like, uh, you relate to me and you think you're you and you're relating to Michael. Like, um, you were saying when we were walking just now, oh yeah, like I know these things about you from the podcast. <laughs> I have to be careful what I say, I guess. <laughs> um, but like, I don't know me. Like, I, I can't know who I am. I can't know who I am. Because there's not like a core thing that I can know as me. So if you relate to me, you're relating to who you think me, I am. But I don't know who that is. I, it's impossible for me to know who that is. So actually, I'm a hologram. And I look like Michael. <laughs> but when you relate to me, sometimes you should put those glasses on and see the hologram so that you can relate to yourself like this also. Because... The more you relate to me as Michael, the more you create for yourself a self. And this is really healthy to do. We all need to do this and appreciate it because there's all these unique selves. Like you can't say the glass doesn't exist. The glass exists, but it's empty of an inherent existence. It's only existent based on conditions. So when I look at you, I'm looking at your parents. I don't know it, but I'm looking at your parents. And you can't even know you too. And this is how we love people more deeply, I think. When you live with someone, this illusion develops that you know who they are. But you know certain habits of who they are, right? It's really annoying, some of their <laughs> habits, isn't it? It's like, oh God, that thing they do, you know. But actually, if you look with the eye of wisdom, uh, you, uh, you don't know them. You don't even know who you are. And this saves relationships. Because a lot of us, you know, we exit relationships too early. We uh, have Vedana arise, unpleasant feeling tone, and then uh, we're disappointed and so uh, we quit. And so many relationships end prematurely because we don't know how to be with our disappointment. But it's actually in the disappointment that the illusion of the separate self falls away. You, see? you have to ride out 
You have to ride out the disappointment. So, if you're in a violent relationship, get out of there as fast as possible. Uh, but many people are in good relationships, but they don't know how to be with their disappointment. So they're just uh, theorizing about how to quit. Anyways, sounds like a downer, you know, but actually it's not, it's really funny. <laughs> what I'm really saying is that um, people are such a surprise. You're a surprise. You're so magnificent. It's so big. It, it can't be contained. Like, the emptiness of the cup doesn't mean it's empty. It means it's so full that you actually can't say it has a core. Because the core is everything. The core of this cup is everything. The core of who you are is all your ancestry. Isn't that amazing? You're a continuation of ancestry. And by how you act, you're continuing the ancestry genetically. But, but, but like, if you don't have children, I, like, I don't mean like you have kids and you're continuing your life. It has nothing to do with that. By all of your actions in society, you're continuing the ancestry. And this should motivate you to sit still sometimes. <laughs> and, to, and to work with some of the habits that show up for you. And in this text, the Buddha is being very clear about how to do this. And that's why you all have a copy of this text. We're only looking at a short part, but I'm giving you enough information that you can study the whole text very easy. Some of you have read ahead already. Uh, read it every day. Or just pick little sections you like and memorize them. Or if you're not good at memorization, then tattoo them. <laughs> tattoo them on your... Um, what's the hip place to tattoo these days? Um, the hip, no? The hip? Um, the Lower chest. Back. The chest? chest and, and, and the belly? And the belly. Yeah. So just like tattoo on the chest. She trains herself. I breathe in experiencing joy. I, I breathe out experiencing joy. Yeah? Or just joy. How's that? Or just check the text. Or just check the text. Yeah. Okay, um, okay so uh, let me read. Um, so we're on a page four. And yesterday we talked about pleasure. Everybody remember that? So uh, he trains himself. I breathe in experiencing mental formations. Breathe out experiencing mental formations. Breathing in calming mental formations. Breathing out calming mental formations. How do you know you've calmed a mental formation? What happens is a pattern of thought uh, emerges you're breathing in and breathing out, and it's in the foreground. Or sometimes I like to joke, it's here, like all over your face. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did anybody have that this morning when they're sitting? It's just like, whoa, no separation. It's just like, this is happening. Okay, and then you're breathing, and you're like, oh my god, I can't find my breathing. And you're just like inside. And then you get a little bit of distance, and you're like, whoa, I'm thinking. Like, oh, 
<laughs> yeah, it's just like it is your skin, you know. And some people, they live their life like this. They don't look at their mind, right? It's just this is how reality is. So you get a little bit of distance. And, um, and then you can see that there's mental formations. Um, and then you notice the mental formations. Remember we were saying you don't try and push them away. Because what happens if you try and push them away? They get stronger and stronger and stronger. And this was Freud's brilliant, brilliant uh, discovery of what he called um, the return of the repressed. Doesn't that sound like a, a, a horror film? <laughs> it is like a horror film, right? And his idea was that the, the amount of energy it takes to repress something is the same amount of energy the repressed content will use to come back in consciousness. And it comes back into consciousness in two ways. The dream or the body. It comes back in your dreams, something that you've repressed, or it comes back in your body as physical symptoms. People forget this about Freud. You know, he was a doctor. He was a physician. They didn't have psychiatry, really. And his interest was how physical symptoms, mostly women, how women's physical (laughs) symptoms could change as they emerged into language. That was very interesting. So anyways, we n- more on that another time. But so, so, so the, 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 the mental formations are arising, we're noticing them, and then as we stay with our breathing, we're calming them, right? You're not trying to push them away, you just stay with your breath. So it's like if you imagine one side of the stick is your thinking, and the other side of the <coughs> stick is your breathing. And when your thinking is all crazy, your breathing is all kind of crazy, okay? So, but most of the time we use our thinking to change our thinking, right? It's called psychoanalysis, and it's really expensive, okay? So if you can't afford it, or you don't want to spend six days a week lying on a couch with a guy with a beard (laughs) interpreting your dreams, it's true. Um, then you go to the other end of the stick, which is your breathing, and you settle your breathing. And as you settle your breathing, your mind settles. Okay, so then the way you know you've calm mental formations is now you're noticing your breathing again, but the mental formations are in the background. The thoughts are in the background. So I want to be very clear about this. Your thoughts do not stop. Once in a while... Thoughts stop. It does happen once in a while. It's not the goal. But what happens is thoughts go in the background, just like the sound of people outside. And it's just, it, it doesn't create stress in your mind. And there's no compulsion. And there's no kind of like investing in it. It's just there's thoughts ticking away in the background. But now your breath is really in the foreground. You're concentrated. Does this make sense? Okay. So in this model, your thoughts don't stop. Okay? Any? Actually, I don't want to ask if there's any questions. <laughs> I want to keep going. So, uh, 
Breathing in, experiencing mental formations, experiencing, so experience means you're breathing and you really take in that the thoughts are spinning in loops. And then you calm them. You calm them by using your breathing and not getting too on top of them, not trying to push them down, not trying to repress them. And then um, you experience mind or mental states is a better translation. You experience mental states and uh, you settle mental states. And this leads to more concentration of the mind. And for the Buddha, there was no difference between uh, psychology and religion. It's the same thing. Uh, The only way to be free is to confront the deepest truths in our hearts, in our relationships, in our minds, and in our bodies. Uh, There's no uh, halfway. Uh, If you're going to be happy, if you're going to feel a genuine compassion, the only way to do this is to recognize the habits in us so that we can see more clearly and connect more deeply with other people. And that's why yesterday I was saying that one of the things that really kills relationships, um, both with ourselves and with other people, is um, when you have unprocessed experiences that are sucking up a lot of energy in the background. And, you know, I think we're learning more and more um, uh, how much trauma there is in the culture. So um, I said yesterday that uh, when you have unprocessed experiences, three things happen. Do you remember what they are? What was the first one? Splitting. Splitting, yeah. In in order to do anything, not to... Splitting was actually the second one. But but the first one was you'll do anything not to be re-traumatized or to feel those feelings again. And you do that by splitting or dissociating. And... um, When this happens, uh, you don't feel real anymore. You're like a half version of yourself. And sometimes it's not one particular thing we've cut off, but it's just like a range of emotions that we've numbed out. And I was saying yesterday that it's like riding a bicycle. Once you can do it, you kind of forget the whole process of how you did it. When this happens, a life starts feeling pretty flat. And uh, when you're cut off from your emotions and you're cut off from your body, the biggest problem is that you can't read affect. Like you can't read what's going on for you. You misread your emotions. So you can't read trust very well. And you misread trust. You can't read safety very well. So you, you, you think some places are not safe when they're safe. And you think some places are safe, but they're not safe. I think we all know of people who have had some kind of splitting, and they trust 
always trust the wrong people. So this leads to the third phase, which I, I, I want to cover briefly today. I feel like it's important to finish off this topic, which is shame. Uh, shame is the feeling of being fundamentally inadequate. Fundamentally inadequate. It's not the same thing, and it's very, very, con- people really confuse it with guilt. Uh, guilt is when you feel bad about things that you've done. And shame is when you feel badly about who you are. In other words, guilt is an action, and shame is more about, about being. So guilt is about an action that you've done or someone else has done, and shame has to do with like your being. Um, it's similar to being judgmental of yourself, but it's actually like below language. It's a feeling. It's not like you judging yourself. It's actually gone into your body as a feeling. And the way most people try and get out of it is by controlling themselves somehow. And there is a really close relationship between perfectionism and shame. Because perfectionism is a way of controlling yourself or your environment to overcome feelings of being fundamentally uh, inadequate. And there happens to be an interesting relationship between perfectionism and Ashtanga Yoga. (laughs) But I'm not allowed to talk about it or I lose my (laughs) authorization. So, yeah. I'm not allowed to talk about uh, perfectionism and I'm not allowed to talk about aging. This is, yeah, this is part of the deal. Or maybe that's just in California, actually. (laughs) So the last thing I'll say about shame is that the problem with shame is that deep down, you feel isolated. So everything I just said about interconnection, uh, you will then interpret that as, oh God, I could never sustain that. (laughs) Because like no one really understands me. But there isn't a me at the core that can be fundamentally inadequate. That's the punchline. The you who you think at the bottom is this cesspool, um, that's just a story that you're creating spatially about your personality. There isn't a fundamental core. And the other thing that's important to remember is that the systems that created these kind of traumas, even if they're uh, you know, subtle traumas, they're so ingrained that they're really hard to see. And the last thing, which I touched on yesterday, is that it's not the event that needs healing. <laughs> It's not the event that needs healing. It's the systems that we created in the wake of the event that need healing. Yeah, again. You want me to say it again? Yes. The last it, yeah, it's not the event in the past 
that needs healing. It's the systems that we created after the event that need healing. So for example, these days everyone's big on um, you know, restorative justice and uh, even retribution or um, reconciliation. You know, somebody hits you with a car and you go to court and you sue them. And in your energy of suing them, you think that when the court date ends and the judge says um, they're guilty and you get a big check, that you're going to have some justice. Well, guess what happens? It doesn't heal the trauma. It does on television. It does on Netflix. It does on Netflix. And the other thing is, we are obsessed with cognitive behavioral therapy. Obsessed. Our culture is obsessed with short-term cognitive behavioral therapy. There's great things about it. But the reason why we're obsessed about it is because insurance companies and governments love it. Because it's short. It's really short. But just working on the cognitive dimension of our troubles isn't deep enough. Because our deeper wounds are lower than that. That's number one. Number two, though, and much more importantly, is that in order to work very deeply with some of this kind of material, you need long-term relationships. Everybody hear that? You need long-term relationships. But somebody who's really scared is going to do anything not to feel those feelings. So why would you get into a long-term relationship that's going to bring you closer to those feelings? And of course, we don't want to do it. Healing can only happen in the present moment. And it can only happen in the body. And when you have deep physical and emotional patterns that are not that accessible to language, you have to deal with them at an emotional and physical level with support from other people. And traditionally, uh, somebody would practice with a teacher, a community, and really good teachings. All those three things in place. But most people, they don't have a teacher, they don't have a community, except for shopping. And they don't really have any teachings, because actually they're kind of hard to find. So we really need to reconnect with what's been dissociated. And uh, you don't have to make this your agenda in life. All you have to do is sit still and feel your breathing. Sit still and feel your breathing. And mental fabrications will arise and you calm them. And physical fabrications, sorry, fabrications, I'm so sorry. Formations. So, so sorry. So, he was almost going to leave. He was traumatized around this. Um, 
We need to challenge the internal survival system that we've created that seems like it's appropriate, even though we know it causes us so much distress and is really made up of this one idea, which is never again. Never again am I going to feel this. So equally critical to healing trauma is healing the shame. The feeling badly about ourselves. And the best thing about mindfulness of breathing, the best thing about mindfulness of breathing is it's so soft. It's so kind. Every time I guide you, I always say one thing, which is... um, your breath is medicine. Do you hear me say that? Mm-hmm. Or some of you are off planning. Um, your breath is medicine. I really mean that. Like when you're sitting, if things get really hard, just remember your breath is medicine. And if you ever feel like you're feeling something that you can't tolerate, then just keep it a little bit to the side and stay with your breathing. You don't have to deal with it head on. You just keep it in the side and your body will soften around it. And if still you feel like you're going to go crazy, you can't deal with it, then find another person to help you. A psychotherapist or a friend or someone to just sit with you or lie with you or like, don't keep it inside. Don't keep it in you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Dissociation, this uh, splitting. Yeah. Thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or compartmentalizing is another way of saying it. Yeah. Not have this instead uh, of never again. Uh huh. But couldn't it have happened so early in your life that you know nothing about this splitting? Oh yeah. 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 And so it manifests in the present in relationships. No, other people are going to get you there too. But what I'm saying is that one of the things that's so important about keeping meditation at the core of our healing is that it's stabilizing our attention. So we're learning how to metabolize more and more. And then when there's something you can't metabolize, include other people in your healing process. But the same is true is other people are so hard to deal with. Yeah? You notice this? It's like impossible, other people. But other people interrupt our habits. So when someone interrupts your habit, you need a meditative practice to reduce your reactivity so you can heal together with them. And, you know, I had for a while, I don't have a psychotherapy practice anymore, but when I had a psychotherapy practice, it was so much there was, it was so much more meaningful working with people who had meditation practices. Because of, because of the kind of work that I did, a lot of people were referred to me because they knew I was interested in meditation. So when you work with someone who has a meditation practice, a lot of the time they can talk about, like they can have a problem with their husband, come in and talk about it, be really worked up, but stay talking about it. 
without jumping out of the emotion. Do you know what I mean? Like, like they can report on it. Yeah. They can unpack it without, you know, staring out the window. Which has happened a lot. Do you know this with people? Or we're talking about dissociation. Like you're talking to someone and they're like, yeah, it's been a really hard week. And, you know, and then, and then they're just gone. Like, whoa, where did you just go? Yeah, so when you're in relationship, the person you're with will often say, where did you just go? Come back again, you know? So mindfulness practice kind of helps us stay here even when it's difficult. Yeah. Michael, can you say that... Oh, wait, there, there was a, one question, but Lars, yeah. yeah. I was just thinking, is it... Should I not go to a... Uh, emotion-focused therapist and just sit down and let that mental formation of, for instance, shame come up in me and then calm that shame. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. So you're suggesting, is that what, can I ask you this question? Is yeah. that why you stopped at yourself as a therapist? Like, does, uh, it, not, does it not help? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, yeah. I'm not, it's because I don't, understand it quite. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Well... Like you say, on the, on, on the one hand, you have these emotions deep in you. That yeah. And you need, a, like, a, what you, you described as a long-term relationship. Yeah. I don't want to make an either-or thing. Like, I am a very big proponent of psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Especially long-term psychotherapy where people develop relationships with a therapist and they find the therapist inspiring okay not just like a doctor they're going to but actually the person they're talking to something about them they find inspiring so that that's i think that's really important freud called that a positive transference right um i'm a big fan of pharmaceuticals okay And what I mean by that is there are some mental states that are often genetic or caused by trauma too, or both, where, remember I was talking about this stuff? I love doing that so much. (laughs) Okay. Where like you're so haunted by images or like repetitive thinking that like, and I've had this experience of you know, like working with people where it's like you're trying to get in there with the breath, but you, they can't get any distance from it. You know, you have this a lot when someone's having psych- a psychosis, too, or sometimes the people in depression can be like this, where like the rumination's so intense, you can't get it, you can't get in there, and that's when you should be on meds. So when I'm working with someone and I see a student, for example. And I see that they, no matter what techniques I'm using, they can't like see what's happening. Then I, I always recommend that they go on meds. And then you take the meds, and if you get the right dose, um, it just calms you enough, or gets you sleeping, or whatever, so that you can actually then start to see your mind. But we also know that you know, taking meds can't change those loops. 
but it can allow you to then work with your mind. And the last thing I'm a big fan of is friendship. All of this stuff is bullshit without friendship. You can't do it. You can't heal all by yourself. In no culture did anybody heal all by himself or herself. You can't do it alone. So if there's a time where you're feeling like it's really tough what's going on in the meditation practice, uh, go see a therapist and get that kind of support. And at the same time, don't stop the meditation practice. Because that support will actually go deeper if you have this ongoing relationship with your mind. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So it's not like an either-or thing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, most of the students who end up studying with me for a while, especially ones that I'm mentoring, I'm, I'm mentoring a group of students to become teachers, um, I ask all of them to see a psychotherapist. You know. And, and you might, like, poo-poo this and think, oh, God, like, everybody's a victim nowadays, and, you know, everyone has to be so attuned and everything. But actually, like, this is evolution. <laughs> like, in indigenous populations the health of the baby was all about the relationship with the mother. The baby was not separated from the mother. And in like, if a drought was coming, your, your attunement with the mother is life or death. The mother's attunement to you is life or death. And not only that, if there's multiple kids, we all complain, oh, like, my, my mother had a favorite or my father had a favorite of the siblings. Maybe some of you are the favorite. Maybe some of you are not the favorite. But like, if there's not enough food to go around or something, the mother is going to pick a favorite kid. Right? Like, like these things that are in our biology. Yeah. So, uh, this is not just like modern privilege. No. <laughs> no, I mean, who heals completely? Like, when you have a scar, it heals, and it might not, like, sting you as much, but, like, it doesn't heal completely. Well, sometimes, and sometimes no. I, I don't want to be, sit here and be idealistic and say, all of us can heal from our traumas and, like, no, there is like stuff that is really hard to heal from. Yeah. Uh, but one thing that I do see that um, did, did that sound pessimistic? I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but like we can heal. But there's some stuff that like you can heal and develop a better relationship with. But it's always going to be a scar. That's where the word samskara comes from. That's where you get the word scar. Right? They're actions that leave a trace. So there are some things that are, are hard to heal from, but we develop a relationship with it when we're not tortured by it anymore. So that's number one. Number two, and this is where I want to end today in a few minutes, but the punchline of this whole thing is that 
as you transform your scars, you become more interested in other people. You become more interested in serving other people. That, that's the punchline. And this is uh, the bodhisattva path. And the bodhisattva path is you're practicing and you see the door of enlightenment. And your teacher says, everybody can be fully enlightened. And you get really excited about this. You're like, I'm going to heal. I'm going to wake up. And maybe last night when you were walking around aware of your breathing, did anybody do this? <laughs> you had a taste of this. It's like, wow, I can actually really be awake. <laughs> and you're walking to the door. You're walking to the door. And you put your hand on the doorknob. And just as you put your hand on the doorknob, you realize, if I'm interconnected with everybody else, I can't walk through alone. I can't walk through the door by myself. Because there's no self that can get enlightened. The whole thing was a construct. And then he realized the door was a construct. The, whole, the door was your teacher's idea that he made up just to get you on the path. And then he realized, holy shit, there's no enlightenment. <laughs> there's no me. There's no me that can get enlightened. What is the point of all this? And then you turn around, and there's all these people. And that's the point. There's all these other people who are wounded. And now that you know have, have a relationship with your wounds, you know how to be with boredom, you know how to be with anger, you know how to be with frustration, you know how to sit still when it's so hard to sit still. And now you can go help people. Because if somebody has anger, you know how to be with them when they're anger, when they're angry, you see. And now when your kids are bored, it's okay, you don't have to give them sugar and iPads. Give them sugar and iPads when they're happy and they're not bored. Oh, you're happy? Have some sugar and an iPad. <laughs> they should make iPads out of sugar where you can like <laughs> lick it and like watch you know, YouTube. So, um, I hope this is sounding logical. Um, but, but daunting. Daunting, yeah. Yeah, because I think sometimes I did my practice, I, you know, I was just saying when we were talking earlier, what have you, what have you learned about it today? It's just like, it doesn't get any freaking easier, you know? So I, I, you know, the more I meditate, the really, you know, yeah. the harder, not the harder it gets, but it doesn't get easier for, for damn sure. You keep stuff, every time you peel one thing away and yeah. down to some, oh, that's really what I feel. You're like, <laughs> that's not really what you're feeling. You're really, yeah, because you can't feel anything because you don't have any self. So, <laughs> it's just like, it does get easier. Does it? You know what changes is you really want to do it. Mm. That's what changes. You start to really want to practice. Yeah. It wow, becomes the most important thing. But I don't know, Richard Freeman, I don't know, somebody posted on uh, saying uh, on thing that um, yoga ruins your life. Yeah. Have you seen that video? It's yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of the same thing. It's like, you don't, I just, 
to an extent, I feel like the more the more you meditate, the more you have to meditate. It's almost, it is almost like a, a drug. I think there's a phase where yoga ruins your life, and the phase is all your friends want to go get drunk, and like that's not you lose kind of it's not so much fun anymore. <laughs> you know, has anyone had that experience? Like their friends are all drunk and they're just sitting there like. <laughs> like watching the time because you have to be in bed at nine o'clock because you have a Mysore class in the morning. Yeah, um, and I think there's a phase of that, and our friendships change, and the values that we want in friends change, and that's okay. And also, there's some relationships that we start to have more patience for. Like maybe you have a friend who has an addiction issue. And you've been trying to fix them forever. And maybe now we can just like step back a little bit and love them from a distance and be like, I'm not going to fix this. And this is their scars working themselves out. And, and now you can love them more because you're not trying to like help them. So um, maybe there is a phase where yoga wrecks your life. Um, but we can pass through that phase. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah. Uh, one more comment or question. A couple, two more, actually, and then we're going to have a break. And you know what I want to do this time? Let's put the two questions together. So your question and then whoever else. Yeah. So when you speak about trauma and traumatization, yeah. is that everybody who has some degree of that, or is it something more medical than that? that no, I think there's people who don't really have yeah. any kind of trauma. My wife, yeah, she has like a perfect upbringing. I hang out with her parents, I'm like, <laughs> what is this family? It's ridiculous, yeah. Her parents just moved into our house. They just retired and sold their house, so we convinced them to, to move in with us. And like, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so it's like the most perfect family I've ever seen. I, every day I'm like waiting for the shoe to drop. Yeah, not everybody. Oh, sorry, I was going to put the questions together. Yeah, kind of, because um, I know they're Finnish. Uh, did they, the parents... It's because they're Finnish. because in Finland, that would be interesting if you came to, you know, to... to because there's lots of trauma. <laughs> 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 That's just really heavy. Like you were talking about shame. It's like everybody like, has a huge backpack of shame when they're walking around. And uh, and that's interesting what you say about her parents. Yeah. Um, uh, they probably lived there away from Finland for enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, they left Finland in 1974 when Finland was still perfect. Yeah, like the cultural shame and trauma and stuff, how that affects you. Because I kind of feel it. Maybe it goes in waves, but sometimes I feel it really strongly and I feel quite helpless with that. Yeah, you know, I just want to like just underline this because, you know, Basically, I'm unpacking a more contemporary language for how the Buddha uses the word dukkha, or Patanjali uses the word dukkha, suffering. And like a lot of people hear this and they're like, this is the most pessimistic spirituality I've ever heard. Like, give me the bliss, man. 
But actually, it's actually turning, like when you really turn towards stillness, bliss comes, but like so does every other mental state. So it's not that we're going and looking for trauma. Some people have trauma, some people don't. But like you'll recognize some of these patterns in you and more importantly in other people. And it's really important. It's really important. Yeah, it's not meant to like make you look inside and pathologize yourself like, oh my God, I'm a victim of trauma. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. But I think we all have some degree. Because like we all have shame passes through. It's just in trauma the shame's stuck, right? But we all feel shame sometimes, right? We all can dissociate sometimes. Right? We all have fear sometimes. One more comment or question. When I'm thinking of this, uh, the question I asked earlier with the situation of refugees and now people standing up and wanting to help. Like, from this, I almost think, like, it's almost like how we in society deal with trauma. Like, this is a trauma. Like, people are yeah. dying on the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> like, and people are actually starting to deal with trauma and not isolating, not choosing the shame, I'm guilty, like... Let's just yeah. shut it off, but actually yeah. starting to reach out and like, I'm going to start to take care mm-hmm. of lonely refugees coming and yeah. like connecting with kids and yeah. like, so maybe that's one of the, or like, do you relate with that? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do something. And connection also, yeah. that that's the, that's the thing yeah. Where, yeah. Where, where healing happens. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do something. And like the simplest thing you can do just to start is like, Look at people. Just look at people. And notice in your community the kind of people you don't usually look at. And look at those people. And usually if you do this for a while, then you start to do things like you talk to people. (laughs) And um, this is a really good practice. So thank you for that. So what do you think about having a break? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just, to, just before we end, before we have this break, I, I just want to remind you that we've covered this whole section here from, ex, from breathing in at the beginning all the way down to um, settling the mind. Can everybody see that? Mm-hmm. That's enough practice for a few years. <laughs> okay? And not only that... Um, uh, that's enough information that you can now read the rest of the sutta and you'll, it'll totally make sense. It'll totally make sense. We've covered the hard part. Okay? So uh, next year when I see you, I expect lots of tattoos <laughs> and really good memorization. Yeah. So um, how, how long do you want to have a break for? How is just like 10 minutes? Is that good? Yeah. Okay. So thank you.